0: This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. I'm Elliot Gottkin, and in this episode, Felicia Mayawit Singh founded a fintech to help businesses and wealth managers generate bigger returns on their cash, a seemingly simpler challenge than levelling the playing field for female founders.
1: Once I was presenting at this one, it's one of the big professional services firms, and they asked me specifically to address, you know, the gender imbalance. I mentioned it, and afterwards, this guy who, because it was an evening event, clearly had had a lot to drink. Um, he came over and he would not let me go. He told me he had three daughters. None of them have ever experienced any discrimination. How can I say that there's discrimination? And, and fortunately for me, I had a few, you know, close mates, market mates who sort of came around. It was quite threatening.
0: Felicia Meowitz Singh, co-founder and CEO of Vakoni. Thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast.
1: Hi, Elliot. Delighted to be here.
0: So uh, how's it going over there in, uh, in London?
1: Uh, everything's great actually this morning very sunny I'm looking out over these huge gardens in front of us and two little puppies are running around so really beautiful uh, and London itself is picking up because like Israel we're coming out of lockdown but obviously more slowly a lot of buzz a lot of energy and I'm even starting to have my first in-person meetings which is very exciting wow, Exciting. Yeah, uh, very exciting. And, uh
0: probably uh, lots of lots of beer flowing as well one would imagine lots uh, and
1: 800 <laughs> outdoor, outdoor chairs in Mayfair so <laughs> yeah you can imagine
0: well uh I know you know I know you're you're in the UK so you're not a Brit but of course Brits we, we love to talk about the weather but I think we should probably uh, talk a bit more about Akoni <laughs> as well um perhaps you can just start just by telling us a bit about your fintech uh what it does um and how it's doing
1: yes absolutely and thank you of course for having me Uh, Ocone is a digital cash platform generating better returns with one point of access to multiple banks. So uh, in the UK, you, you ask yourself, why can't a financial advisor move your cash around to increase returns as easily as they move your other investments, despite cash being the simplest of all assets? Uh, In in the UK, the four biggest banks control 80% of the market and provide very little in returns or tools for retail savers. And this applies irrespective of the interest rate environment. Advisors always like to keep a portion of cash in investment portfolios. And using multiple banks, opening multiple accounts is just too laborious and really no one's got the time. And even comparable money market yield lower returns. At ACONI we provide that solution. We we provide already an integrated uh, technology-led solution for investment platforms and financial advisors. And we make it very easy to find and place uh, savings with just that one application with a digital KYC process, which is totally unique in the savings market. Uh, we obviously FCA regulated and we work with multiple partner banks, uh, Barclays, Investec, Aldermore, etc. And users can easily plan and earn a better return. We leverage open banking, open finance, and we are very client centric in our proposition.
0: And just to be clear, it's, it's very SME, wealth manager, high net worth individual kind of focus. This isn't for general consumers out there.
1: Uh, well, We do work with general consumers, but we are typically a B2B platform. We primarily work with investment platforms and financial advisors, wealth managers as our partners. And at the end, their clients are obviously retail investors like you and I. And those retail investors come in really three ways. One is you could be a high net worth, you know, via a financial advisor. You could be just a normal retail saver via a workplace pension via your employee. Employer, And the third is you could just be using a direct platform for your investment. So ultimately, any of those three, which means retail savers could be our clients, but we would not go out there and market ourselves. We are that intel inside in terms of cash because cash has been so neglected, but easily can deliver an increased returns when you work with partners like ourselves. And we see actually leveraging these long-term, very trusted distribution channels of investment platforms and advisors. And being that integrated solution is really where the marketplace is moving towards.
0: So who would you be competing with?
1: So we'd be competing within the UK, because we can offer ourselves in the UK and then uh, internationally as well, longer term, is in the UK, there's platforms who do offer cash solutions like a Raisin or Flagstone or insignis, However, they are not built for financial advisors and do not leverage technology. Really, in terms of, we're we're very unique in our technology-led approach. Uh, You know, in order to succeed, we really focus on three aspects, that technical innovation, advisor and client-centric proposition, and designing a cash service that's very powerful and specifically for these investment platforms. And so whereas the competition, it's sort of like two camps, but some are old-fashioned, manual, cash service, and they haven't, they don't have a real technical strategy that is required for massive scale um, and have like large-scale human operation, and others are very large enterprise, but then they offer nothing in the non-advised space. Whereas a Kony, we can function across all those channels and we are specialists in the advisor space.
0: Okay. Well, we talked a little bit about the situation as hopefully the UK is emerging from yeah. the pandemic. Yes. In terms of Acone as a business, uh, did you get the kind of, you know, perhaps V-shape where when things started and everything stopped, it hit you? And then since then, it's just been all systems go. Has it impacted you overall positively, negatively? What's been the overall yeah. effect uh, from COVID?
1: So initially when COVID hit, we saw banks were in a lot of shock, And they withdrew um, liquidity while they assessed the market because immediately overnight, demand for lending, you know, dried up because there was a a huge uncertainty in the market. So businesses, individuals looking forward, we're not sure. And if lending demands dry up, then liquidity and demand for deposits decrease. Uh, That took about two, three months for banks to reassess their position. And once they'd settled... We've just seen ongoing increased demand, particularly in our space, because the challenge in the wealth sector, the wealth, high net worth, the investment sector, is that we've all gone digital. If you were a firm offering solutions before, whether you're an advisor, wealth manager, investment platform, that weren't digital, COVID has pushed you to ensure that you do offer solutions in very neglected areas, and they have to be, obviously, all online, And they have to be very simple that someone could do from their sofa, which is why we've got, you know, our five minutes um, digital KYC process. And we we see that trend continuing. For instance, currently in the UK, the advisor-led platforms, none of them offer cash solutions. But in five years, we anticipate all of them will offer cash solutions. And that will include... Advisor-led, it will expand into the workplace solutions as well as um, direct investment uh, platforms. A few direct in pla- investment platforms have some cash solutions, but very early days and very basic. They don't cover all needs. Uh, so, and the one thing that's worth um, noting, which I think has been mentioned before, is COVID really resulted in a tripling of household savings in the UK. And we've seen this happen uh, across the rest of the world as well. So, you know, household savings rate, which were, you know, trending at 6 to 8% just jumped to like 20 to 25%. And we anticipate that an, a certain amount of that is going to stay even after, you know, the consumer growth effect happens. But household savings are, are going to continue at a certain level that certain savers are now used to spending less and saving more. And obviously that uh, positions us very well in the sector. Because for something like cash, if no one has offered that, the big banks have done nothing. So the typical platforms to offer that are going to be the investment platforms, financial advisors, even the personal savings app, pushing out the prompts. And then they need the marketplace, which is fully integrated API first, sitting behind them.
0: And since, you know, I know it's kind of early days, but since the UK began opening up, do do you think... Have you noticed any change in terms of uh, of businesses' approach? Uh, has it just has things just continue to go in the same direction, or is there a sense that maybe you know uh, businesses and uh, high net worths are falling back into their old habits?
1: Uh, no, I don't think they'll be falling back into their old habits. I think that there is a permanent tra- change, especially relating to doing business digitally. Uh, in terms of as COVID is sort of, I don't want to say coming to the tail end, but we're dealing with it. We are seeing more and more businesses actually be more confident because the vaccination program is rolling out, a consumer confidence is starting to pick up. So that confidence is leading to more and more decisions being taken because many of the enterprises who will we'll deal with these very large wealth platforms, you know, can take one or two years to make a decision about working with a partner like us because naturally they are highly regulated we are regulated our banking partners are highly regulated and governance controls sit at the heart of what we do because essentially our platform opens the bank accounts you know with our partners per the mandates of our partners and all of that in, we have to ensure that while we are leading in terms of the innovation we are also leading in terms of very strong governance controls reporting and metrics to our banks are working together with our advisor clients and uh, investment platforms.
0: And how long have you been uh, working at Acone and what was it that kind of, you know, got you into fintech in the first place? Was there a particular problem you were trying to solve?
1: Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I used to work in the London insurance market, the Lloyd's insurance market, and we managed a lot of cash and just there were no solutions in the market. At the time, I assumed that there was like a miniature treasury system for, for me as a CFO managing cash under the client money rules, which are very strict in the UK, as well as our own funds. And there just was nothing. And obviously, this problem is shared by us, the wider personal savings market. And that's when I started looking at, well, this could be solved by setting up a panel. And I understood a little bit about the regulatory environment. And then I obviously met Panos, who's my co-founder and our CTO. And we came together to, you know, launch Akoni. So that was a few years ago. We first launched as a SME business, you know, b2b focused platform and then last year we focused like almost singularly on the wealth sector in terms of the opportunities
0: and uh, you i think started off life as a as a management consultant <laughs> yeah. Uh, if uh, yeah if i if i understood correctly was it always your plan to um, in your mind to create something yourself to go into business to, yeah. to be an entrepreneur?
1: Yeah. So it just took me a long time. Um, so I started off as a management consultant and, be, and a chartered accountant at Price Waterhouse Coopers back in South Africa. And as soon as I finished my articles, I worked with a fantastic guy, Errol Grohlman, who, who was one of the original founders, unknown of Investic. And that was—it was very clear to me. You know, as soon as I finished the articles, I, I wanted to start my own business, but I needed some experience because I'm very financial services focused, and there's some elements of financial services that. Just quite simply due to having very strong management and governance controls, you need some experience. And so I spent those years getting that experience and then looking at different options. I, I actually went to India. <laughs> we, well, the first thing is in the UK, myself and some partners, we actually left our very big uh, financial services company in the insurance sector and we started our own Lloyd's Broker and Underwriting Agency. So that was my first foray into entrepreneurship, and then after and that, went well? that um, yeah, that went well. That was sold to Willis, uh, and it was more professional and not as tech focused as I am now. We had tech, but tech was not at the heart. Really, insurance and the market were at the heart of it. And uh, then from that, I decided I wanted to do something very innovative, like extremely different. And I went to India to look at setting up a micro savings, micro insurance type scheme. So leapfrogging what we know in our markets. And that was fascinating. But I, I really didn't make any money during that time. I didn't raise external funds. And the market there is very different in terms of the regulation and how things work. And I was I was quite used to the London market and the kind of FCA-type regulations at that point, I mean, FSA in those days. And so when I came back, that was when I started looking at alternatives and set up a Kony.
0: Right, but forgive me we just go back a little bit. You just decided one day just to kind of up sticks and go to India and set up a, well, a fintech there. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about yeah. that. I'm sure there's something more to yes. that story.
1: Um, so the first thing is obviously I'm South African. So I come from a country where there is massive income equalities. And what that does is when you are, you know, I was living in London at the time, and you just see the amount of resources, intelligence and innovation that goes into building the wealth sector. Building, maintaining wealth, and what I thought is, imagine if you know a few of us could apply that level of innovation to emerging markets, to you know the the low end of the market, rather than applying it to the top end of the market or the middle end. And I thought, let me look. This is an opportunity after um, Prime Professions was sold to Willis. Uh, th- let me look at how I can work in these markets, and that was really. I spent a little bit of time researching the market believe it or not I I also went to Nigeria and I looked at Kenya at the time but decided on India because it's a massive market very high growth Um, you know like the middle class in India is double the size of the whole of the UK as uh, just giving you the idea conceptually and I started working quite early on with some partners there, uh, both in the mobile insurance, mobile savings space, as well as micro insurance and micro savings. And um, yeah, just a, a, partly because I didn't fundraise externally and partly because the regulatory environment is quite different, uh, that eventually I, I came back uh, and started looking at alternatives in this market. But yeah, it's fascinating. It's like being let into a different world, Elliot. Just in terms of everything, from the way things are done, from a business perspective, from the way um, people conduct themselves personally, it's fascinating. And and really, when you look at innovation, it's on a different scale in, in, compared to the way we see things here.
0: And so, when you look back now at uh, um, that business in India, you view it as a success. Would that be like considered a successful exit? Would it be one of your you know no, failures? No, that I would of... say.
1: Um, I would say it it wasn't really a startup in the sense that I raised money and got a team I sort of bankrolled the whole thing myself <laughs> And so I would say I learned a lot that if you're going to go into something, you've got to be in it, committed, raising money, looking at the resource requirements, you know, very seriously and applying yourself to those resources. Whereas because I was managing it myself, it inevitably turned into something that became more of a consulting firm rather than a high growth startup. So I would, I'd call that a learning experience. I wouldn't even say it's a failure because it wasn't something that got off the ground as a big bang. Um, it's, uh, you know, I went there thinking, well, you know, I want to launch something and I want to see how it goes in a new market. But one of the things I did learn for anyone who's looking to go into a market that they're not familiar with is, you know, how critical it is to work with local partners and local staff members and so on.
0: Right, and I guess, of course, you uh can't be considered a failure because of course that's where you met your husband yes so, uh,
1: <laughs> Definitely. you didn't come back empty-handed and exactly and and I have my daughter now so really fantastic and not only that I, I developed new life perspectives many things like we had a big Indian wedding and a big Jewish wedding in Delhi Wow. <laughs> yeah right
0: Hence the, uh, hence the slightly uh, long. uh, Yeah, the mermaid Singh, exactly. Yes, Um, and I mean you've told us you're obviously from South Africa. I mean your your family, your early years was it like a kind of typical middle class, you know, South African uh, upbringing where where you were? Were your family kind of you know from a long line of entrepreneurs?
1: No, not at all. And, in fact, um, it's something I really want to encourage in my daughter. I'm extremely pro and supportive of female founders. Uh, so because I didn't have that, you know, my, my parents were like middle class professionals, you could say. And that was what, you know, I started out as a chartered accountant. Um, obviously discovered that I have a higher appetite for risk than an accountant and uh, have landed up, you know, Going and exploring new ventures, which I think is very, very key. Um, one of the things for me that really came from my South African upbringing was the extreme injustice. You know, I'm I'm married to someone from India. If this had been when I was growing up, it would have been illegal in South Africa for us to be married, let alone living in the same <clears throat> area. So. At that sort of level of injustice and, and normalized bias it sort of created within me something where I thought, you know, if there's anything that I can do, even if it's small, to help the ch- and change society, change perceptions of people, whether it's through business, which is obviously clearly a passion um, of mine and where I get a huge amount of satisfaction, um, or in other ways, then, then uh, luck like it's something I, I would pursue – And so I've been involved in a number of charitable endeavors, like I'm involved in something amazing called TEDx Houston for 10 years, where um, myself and together with these incredible uh, guys who are mainly public health doctors, launched a, a TEDx platform for Africa in London. So for the diaspora, we flew in speakers from across the continent, including like Chimamanda Adichie, Albi um, Sachs, a whole range of very inspiring individuals. And we coordinated a very polished event every single year, very, all a labor of love, um, as well as you know, a number of other things like Hive Founders, which supports female founders and is, uh, for me, it's very critical to provide people at early stages support. To keep them going, you know, when there's times where people might feel like giving up because, you know, the entrepreneurial journey is hard.
0: sure well i want to come back to your um, support for female founders in in just a yeah. moment um but don't go away because uh i just need to remind our listeners that this podcast is part of the paris fintech forum communities program for 2021 and in this special pandemic period you can enjoy throughout the year top level live sessions with key industry players exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers develop your network create new business opportunities and continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry and you can find out more at www.parisfintechforum.com. So, Felicia, um, we were talking just before about your support for female founders. Uh, we've, of course, had a lot of male founders on the Fintech podcast. Unfortunately, not so many women, which I hope is more a reflection of the lack of female founders rather than our lack of effort. Um, you're quite involved in a, in a number of programmes. You mentioned Hive as being one of them. Uh, I mean, just you know, perhaps more conceptually, taking you know a more broader perspective, is there a sense that... You know, we should be focusing more on gender equity rather than gender equality when it comes to founders and and fintech?
1: Um, Yes, uh, I agree. And I think there's that great great, um, diagram or that graph of three little boys or three little girls watching a football match on boxes and then splitting the boxes so they can all see them. So I think gender equity is the same thing. And I think it's important also from a minority perspective as well uh, uh, that we work through this. I also originally before I became a female founder was not a fan of scrutinizing things like quotas and policy. And since I've been a female founder, I've looked at that more carefully and um, also looked at leading, leading lights in this, like Suzanne Chitsy, who's the CEO of FinTech Circle. And one of the things she said is, well, you know, why don't the LPs or one in sovereign wealth funds have got certain, you know, gender founder, mon- you know, minority based targets. And, like, we all say that you shouldn't have it, but is anything going to change without it? And there have been just so many statistics on this in terms of where where women are and how COVID has really impacted us. And I just think that we have to acknowledge that, you know, things happening on their own, it's just, without interventions, will just not progress anything.
0: And what... What's your personal experience? I mean, do you feel that you get treated differently when it comes to fundraisings or when it comes to forming partnerships? Uh, is it exactly the same? I mean, I know I appreciate you haven't got, you know, you can't feel how it would be if you were not a female founder, but what's your what's your particular experience been?
1: Um, so from my perspective, I, I don't feel like I have had specific bias against me, but the issue is more... That it's a very unconditional, I mean, un, like, uh, sorry, um, you know, unconscious bias, not unconditional, unconscious bias, where people are not aware of it. And, and when I say this, this is not a, a male-female issue. It's a societal issue. So I, I think that really what we, we need is the change has got to come at a serious policy level. And I even see, like, in the last two days, I've seen two totally conflicting reports. One report in the UK which came on and said women now have the same access to finance as men. And, and the other report, which was European, which says if you're a female, found a fat chance of raising any venture capital money in Europe. So, and I was reading these two and just thinking, well, what's going on with this disconnect? So, I think there needs to be a much more standardized research that is accepted by policymakers policymakers then need to look at this fairly complex problem you know starting you know when women are young and how to make a solution because you see the statistics that i mean something crazy at some point was three percent of all capital goes to women-led businesses and but you have at least one in ten new women wanting to start their own business so why is that you know why is that and even the bias Within financial services algorithms, which I think we'll see legislation about coming out of the EU over the next year or two, like much more fairness and and requirements for financial institutions to drive change out of um, change in terms of their bias from those algorithms. But that bias itself is, again, reflective of the the societal issues. And I think we have to remember that culturally women did not and and in, and in most of the world do not play a very powerful role in any sort of decision-making ability. So although all diversity agendas, in my view, have stalled during COVID, but still 77% of leadership roles are not minorities or women, despite early education and women staying in the workforce for longer. So well, if those problems still exist... We have to have change in some other way. And there's a terrible statistic, Elliot. Sorry to – I just want to say that if companies continue to hire and promote women at the current pace, in 10 years, the number of women in management will increase by just 1%. I mean. Wow
0: as uh, food for thought. I mean, you mentioned unconscious bias. I mean, are there any examples that that you can uh, share that you experienced?
1: Yeah, so uh, it was quite interesting. I was actually on a presentation stage once and it was one of these, you know, it was early days pitch judges where there were five judges and it was myself and three male founders and the men were all asked questions which were focused on the opportunity how are you going to reach scale what do you see as this one and I was asked questions which were only focused on the risk and I remember you know because you're standing on the stage not much there's no you know two-way interaction with an audience and I remember being quite deflated when I realized the difference in the questions and that was really what started me to start looking at well Is this just me? I met Andrea, who's co-founded Hive Founders, you know, where we support female founders um, around that time. And we started discussing it. And I also then looked at the research where there was a lot of research into what questions venture firms, venture capital firms, ask female fund versus what they ask male founders. And interesting enough, the research is along those lines. So there's a lot of advice about if you asked a question focused on risk, turn it around and say the following. So I think it exists. I don't think it's intentional. In in, uh, I mean, other than in very rare situations. Like once I was presenting at this one. It's one of the big professional services firm, and I was presenting to all the alumni and all the mentors on this one lab program they had, because for the incoming, you know, lab companies. And I was talking about this, and they asked me specifically to address, you know, the gender imbalance. I mentioned it. And afterwards, this guy, who because it was an evening event, clearly had had a lot to drink. Um, he came over and he would not let me go. He told me he had three daughters. None of them have ever experienced any discrimination. How can I say that there's discrimination? <laughs> and, and fortunately for me, I had a few you know, close mates, market mates, who sort of came around. It was quite threatening. And I, I said to him, I'm just quoting a McKinsey report. This, you know, I'm not saying only my view this is you need to address this with McKinsey and tell them that their research is wrong um so it's quite interesting when when someone sort of very much has the view that you know that bias and discrimination do not exist that it's just a meritocracy and we're not you know we're not all advancing
0: but I guess perhaps you know I appreciate it's nothing major but you know uh, perhaps in the olden days people would say well you know how are you going to found a business if you're you know going to be having a family as well, and actually I try and flip that on its head, so when I had uh, Christian phase, the founder of LendInvest, and I had uh, Shahab Yalik, founder of Curve. Yeah on the show, and they've got very, you know, small babies, so I would specifically ask them, you know, how are they managing, uh, given that they've got small children to, to running, uh, running companies at the same time. But uh, it was interesting, you mentioned as well about uh, the need for policymakers to, to do something yeah. in this. And I think, um, actually, just uh, recently, um, on, on the day that we're doing this interview, the EU is uh, proposing new laws uh, regarding artificial intelligence, um, and also face, facial, facial recognition as yeah. well. Um, what specifically you know do you think this should come top down from policymakers whether it's regarding uh, you know bias conscious or otherwise in algorithms or in in terms of hiring practices or funding practices or is it something that you know the industry needs to come together to sort out you know sort sort Uh, sort 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 its uh, get its own house in order
1: i think it has to come from policymakers there's no question about this i mean it's very crazy because if you look at this like um, under the UN Sustainable Goals, obviously gender equality is one of those and yet we still are seeing uh, 113 countries who do not have laws to ensure equal pay for equal work. Right, 29 countries which restrict the hours women can work and 18 countries where men can prohibit their wives from working. And the reason I'm quoting those is although it might not exist in my country or your country that we live in right now, but a developer could come from one of those countries and have that cultural bias in their minds when they are doing most of these algorithms and most of the algorithms are developed by men so for me you have to have some review which is coming from policymakers like you just said on the eu side and both relating to image recognition but then when we start looking at decisions around credit around life insurance around a whole range of financial products which are critical to the well-being of families and individuals, those decisions have to be reviewed for fairness as well. And it's just interesting because we spoke about high founders, but myself and a group of very senior women, um, mainly CEOs and senior financial leaders, we started this organization called Open 51. And the purpose there is to promote the thought leadership around all the data that's being shared because you know 51 percent of the world is women and we are using a lot of open data you know um you know obviously in aconey we use open banking and what we call open finance and other open apis in order to make those personalized decisions and prompts and we see that that just continuing but the risk is of course that that data is not adequately being representing uh you know a woman in in an even way so we have to be able to address that you know through giving more voices to more women as well entrepreneurs technologists innovators and so on
0: right and, and there are other organizations i know <clears throat> such as the 30 uh, uh, yeah. percent club yeah. which uh, you know uh, Anne cairns from mastercard is uh, uh, heads up um is is something like that is that a good kind of target to have is is it just a, an outlandish one that's just not going to be achieved in our lifetimes, or, or do you have to just start somewhere?
1: Um, yeah, I think you have to start somewhere. And I think, I think they have achieved their targets, um, you know, I, in terms of in the UK. I think there have been some, some years where they haven't and some where some they have and so on. And because I think, uh, like in the UK, they did a review where I think there were only two boards which didn't have um, any woman representing them. And so now the challenge for me is, again, around the equity that you mentioned, is you don't want to just have a woman on your board just because you need to have some sort of diversity. It needs to be much more serious in terms of including in the overall agenda as opposed to a little bit of a a tick box exercise. So I I do think that um, they help. I think the issue is that what we've seen is a lot of small initiatives across um, the sector, which are not driven by government, and they therefore are not a consolidated or holistic, integrated view. Uh, you know, so you just have all these small players or small organisations, and there needs to be much more coming together so everything is weaved cohesively.
0: And uh, at Acorni itself, uh, you, you presumably reach and exceed that that target. Uh, and if you do, does that? does that give you any kind of edge over competitors in your space because you are more balanced as a result? Not just because you're quote-unquote doing the right thing. Yes. um, But because does it actually help? Is there a business case for it as well?
1: Yeah. So I think the first thing is there is a business case for it. Um, When they've studied uh, companies with diverse management teams and shown that they consistently outperform in terms of revenue and profitability over the long term. So, but interesting enough, those studies are still not paid attention to by investors. So that's the first thing. Um, and the second is within my organization, Well, what I believe and uh, hopefully what my management team and our company believes is that diversity as a whole, diversity of thinking, not just of gender, but diversity of thinking is really what's going to drive the innovation and creative changes that are needed, you know, whether it's for our business to thrive and working with and listening to our advisors and investment platform continuously innovating there, or more generally for society. So for me, that diversity is gender, um, minorities, um, also background. You know, you don't only want people who are all you know gone to Oxford and Cambridge, or you don't only want people who've you know all gone to a certain or come from a certain region of the UK or any specific country. Uh, so, yes, I think it's very important in terms of the creativity and coming up with new solutions and continuously innovating. That's which is what's key to serve clients.
0: And a lot of fund managers and institutions these days, you know, they're no longer investing or they're investing less in companies that are exposed to, you know, let's say oil and gas or, um, you know, polluting yeah. uh, companies, or um, they might, uh, you know, only be investing in companies that have particular policies regarding climate change, for example, Uh, should diversity, you know, I mean, if BlackRock comes out tomorrow and says, "Okay, from now on, we're only investing in companies that have got at least half their board members uh, are women or something like that. Does does it need some kind of radical intervention of that nature?
1: Uh, Well, you have actually seen that. So one of the big fund managers in the UK came out and said, if their investee companies have not conformed to the expectations of board diversity, which in particular having minorities on their board within the next one to two years, they are going to divest of them. So you are seeing some of that uh, coming out from the private investor side. And I, I mean, I was cheering. I thought, wow, it's unbelievable. <laughs> one of the biggest players, you know, making an announcement like that, uh was something i was almost you know waiting to see you
0: know right and, and so we've talked, uh, we talked we've kind of talked a lot and got very deep into the gender and diversity area so uh, i just want to kind of you know as we uh, head towards the end yeah. ask you a little bit more about uh, acony and then uh, as we as we finish up uh you saw i think we, we talked about the boost that you got during covid um Didn't ask you about the kind of traction, the number of customers uh, that you're getting. Perhaps you can give us a sense of your scale and size, maybe revenues. I don't know. I know you're a private company, but perhaps you can tell us what you can tell us.
1: Yes. Absolutely. So obviously we're a B2B company, so we don't usually talk publicly um, because we talk, we work with these investment platforms and wealth managers. Um, What I can say is uh, we work across the board with very large scale uh, investment platform firms who have got hundreds of thousands of clients. And right now um, we're working with firms in excess of one million end clients and more than a thousand advisor firms. So that's our our reach and we distribute our product through those kind of channels. So quite significant. Um, We're still growing because um, we're new and we're targeting more growth in the wealth sector. So over the next two years, our aim is to double that.
0: And and can you give us an indication of uh, of revenues or at least perhaps the the kind of growth that you're seeing?
1: Um, So we're seeing uh, for us like more than 10 to 20 percent growth every single month. And we anticipate that that would continue, likely grow further because we tend to have big humps when we launch with one of our new um, investment platform partners. And you only do launches like that because in the whole market, there's only about 30 in the UK. So it tends to be one, two, three launches like that a year maximum.
0: And so where do you go from here?
1: So for us, um, uh, we're very focused on the wealth sector, in particular, advisor-led, and um, workplace solutions as well as um, some on the direct but that's the more simple solution so growing that market further we we have a fantastic advisory board which is also growing we're adding a few um new layers to that all of whom are typically wealth investments um you know workplace market specialists so we're growing there and we will Obviously, go into another fundraising round later this year uh but the main thing for us is to keep innovating and delivering for our clients
0: right uh, and just finally um Felicia, this is the question I put to everyone now at the end of the uh of the podcast what's the weirdest or craziest thing you've uh, ever built or done in your life
1: uh the weirdest or craziest thing um i don't know i I don't know whether crazy counts, but uh jumping out of a plane three times (laughs) that was tandem skydiving like now when I look back that's not really crazy in the sense of building a business crazy but some people thought it was crazy when I went to India and I I set up um, that uh, micro savings enterprise and now when I look back I'm like yeah it was a bit crazy so those are my two you know crazy business and personal things
0: (laughs) okay well um, look Really appreciate your taking the time um, to speak to me uh, today and uh, wish you the best of luck uh, for yourself and also uh, for Oconee um, in the coming year and, and beyond. So, uh, thank you, Felicia Meowitz Singh, co founder and CEO of Oconee, for joining us on the FNTech podcast.
1: Thank you, Elias. Lovely to be here.
0: Felicia's fintech journey took her from South Africa to India and then back again to the UK. Things didn't always go to plan, but it's clear her determination to succeed with Oconee is at least matched by her drive to enable other female founders to follow in her footsteps, while trying to persuade policymakers that they have a critical role to play too. You'd be a brave man or woman to bet against her. So thank you, Felicia Merwitz-Singh, and thank you for listening to the Fintech podcast with me, Elliot Gottkin, now part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you have any comments, suggestions or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Paris Fin Forum or at Elliot Gottkin. That's it for me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best FN Tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye bye.